Hello and welcome to Faith and Film. It's summer. It's quite a quiet time, I have to say, but not at the movies. And so, to discuss all the latest stuff, I've got Father Peter Malone on the line from Melbourne, Australia. And I tell you what, Peter, I've just found out that Melbourne has been voted the world's most livable city for the fifth year in a row. So you must be a happy chap down there. I thought Vancouver was supposed to be the most livable city, but uh, Melbourne is all right. So you'll be most welcome when you come to see it. And also since we last spoke, you've had a birthday, haven't you? So a belated happy birthday from me and everyone here at the Bishop's Conference. Well, thank you for that, James. I spent the day teaching, so it was an enjoyable one. Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do today. Now, in summer, I suppose, we do get the big blockbusters, and we have had those, the Jurassic Worlds, Mission Impossibles, and so forth. But we're going to be a bit countercultural, Peter, and we're going to talk about some, some films inspired by literary classics. Madame Bovary, Far From the Madding Crowd, and Mr Holmes. I'm hoping that if people hear this broadcast and the films have gone, they'll be available somehow or other on DVD or downloading or something like that so that um, they will be worth watching. Well, our first one, I don't think we're going to have that issue because it's Mr Holmes. Interesting film, this, and and it's a a bit of a different take on Sherlock Holmes, isn't it? We've got uh, Sir Ian McKellen in in the title role there, and we've we've become a bit accustomed to Benedict Cumberbatch's sort of youthful and, and frolicking approach to Holmes. But this is a bit of a sort of... A Holmes keen to rewrite his legacy a bit, isn't he? A bit grumpier, a bit more sort of, you know, I smoke cigars, not pipes and all that sort of thing. But he's still very likeable. I found it a most enjoyable film. I was lucky enough to see it some months ago because it screened at the Berlin Film Festival and I was very glad to be able to see it then. And only one gets busy at home, I would actually sit through it happily again. And Ian McKellen, I think, suits the part admirably. You are very great detective. Thank you very much. My mother, she wonders if you have brought your famous hat. Oh, the dear stalker. That was an embellishment of the illustrator. I've never worn one. And a pipe? I prefer a cigar. I told Watson, if I ever write a story myself, it will be to correct the million misconceptions created by his imaginative license. What did you think about this whole Dr Watson wrote it one way, but I'm going to give you the sort of reality of my life? Well, that I enjoyed. Uh, Just as a, a kind of parenthesis, did you ever come across a film from the 1980s called Without a Clue? Ah, yes. Yes, indeed. So it was really Dr. Watson that actually did all the investigating. Yeah. And he used the literary form of Sherlock, who was played by Michael Caine, who was a bit of a dimwit. <laughs> so, so there's uh, been all kinds of experiments with uh, the relative roles of Watson and Holmes. But Dr. Watson isn't in this one, so it's just Holmes. And it's Holmes at uh, 90 something in 1947. And then the flashbacks to one of his cases, or as they say in this film, his last case. So when he was, um, yes, considerably younger in 1912. But um, Ian McKellen can do both parts and look convincing. Yeah, he's a remarkable actor, isn't he? And he certainly um, was very convincing in this one. I thought he was very good. And I, I liked the 1947 part. That It's intriguing what they made up, sending him to Japan 
after the uh, bombing of Hiroshima and then his uh, wanting some elixir to help him with his health, but then coming back and living in retirement. And uh, I enjoyed Laura Linney as the rather solemn housekeeper and Sherlock Holmes' relationship to the young lad of the house and the young lad kind of helping him to uh, understand that last case which he wants to write up. Now, we're very um, into Sherlock Holmes, certainly here in England, of course. I mean, we've had so many people, as I say, Benedict Cumberbatch uh, in the title role. Jeremy Brett, I remember. You might remember him. I mean, I was quite young at the time when he was uh, on our screens in the, in the TV, um, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Basil Rathbone as well. I mean, it's amazing the sorts of characters or the sorts of actors that have played Holmes. They've all had their quirks and eccentricities, haven't they? They have. I remember uh, one I liked very much was Robert Stevens in mm. The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. So, yes, there have been quite a lot. Actually, practically all the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes are available on YouTube. So if anybody wants to catch up, I uh, found that I've seen them all now because... Um, I spent some time on YouTube watching Basil Rathbone. Now, Peter, what sort of a legacy do you think this cements for Holmes? As a detective, and his thinking the things are elementary, and he does say it, he's an interesting character on the facts and on logic, which is not something that I automatically respond to empathetically, but I find it intriguing how he can actually marshal a lot of facts draw his conclusions very logically. So I find him an interesting challenge because I do like reading detective and police investigation stories. So he's become something of a classic that way. And himself, I suppose, as a very um, Victorian Edwardian gentleman, even though Mr Cumberbatch has brought him into the present. So he has that kind of air of the classic past, which I think is intriguing in itself. Do you think there's an element of the sort of anti-hero about Sherlock Holmes in all these different sort of characterizations? He's got a certain vanity so that I think he does see himself actually as a hero and then even though he talks in a way of putting himself down, that may be anti-hero, so he's something of a mixture, but I don't think he suffers from uh, too much modesty and let's just say, Peter, that this was the, the final Holmes film. Do you think a, a strong and uh, talented character actor like Ian McKellen was, was perfect as, to leave Holmes on, on this level if, it, if no other films were made? I Yes, is the quick answer to your question, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are going to be um, many more Sherlock Holmes films because I think as uh, some of the character actors... Ian McKellen, who's just a bit older than I am, is of a certain age, so that I would think, say, somebody in his 40s or 50s in the future will probably want to do a Sherlock Holmes film. So um, overall, Peter, a good film. You'd recommend people to see it. You sound enthusiastic about it. I was enthusiastic. I found it thoroughly enjoyable. I was wondering, however, uh, what a younger audience would make of it, because we who are a little older than we used to be are so used to those various Sherlock Holmes that it's a delight to see him as played by Ian McKellen. But if somebody hasn't a background, I'm not sure how well it would go over. But in itself, I think it's, uh, it's an excellent Sherlock Holmes film. Can we move to Victorian England, Peter? 
All right. You know where I'm going, don't you? We're going uh, far from the madding crowd. The fourth Thomas Hardy novel, I believe, at the tail end of the the 19th century. And um, yes, we've got an interesting story here about um, a Victorian woman running a farm, no less. I mean, whatever next. Well, James, I'm old enough and I can tell you that the second film I ever reviewed was Far From the Madding Crowd. And that was with Julie Christie, with Peter Finch and with Terence Stamp and with Alan Bates. And it ran longer, actually, than the present one, about two and a half hours. Beautifully done, directed by John Schlesinger, and it came out in 1967-68. I couldn't read the book. I can't read Hardy for some reason, but I was very much entranced by the film. So I was really very looking forward to uh, what the 21st century would do with it. And I think the Danish director, Thomas Vinterberg, but I think he's done an excellent job and certainly has taken us back to uh, a credible and intriguing Victorian England. And I thought the, the, the actors did a very good job on this as well, very convincing. I thought it was a good film. Yes, I did read one review afterwards, thank goodness, who criticised Matthias Schoenert for having an English accent, he's Belgian, mm. but for not having a provincial English accent, which he should have. That didn't so really bother me. I, th- I thought it was a, a reasonable shot at an English accent of the time. I did too. That's an ultra-perfectionist who's perhaps wanting to show off. But anyway, <laughs> it was a comment. And I thought, Matthias Schoenert can do all kinds of different roles. I find him an impressive actor. Did you have a film earlier in the year about Louis Fourteenth called A Little Chaos? It was about the building of gardens in Versailles. Alan Rickman directed it and starred as Louis XIV. And Kate Winslet was uh, the designer of the garden and she had to work with Matthias Schoenert. So he was an, an architect in the time of Louis XIV. I think he's an interesting actor. I was surprised that he was there to portray Gabriel Oak, who by his name is, you know, the solid centre of the film, Bathsheba Everdeen running the farm and then her various suitors, but he being the faithful, almost silent one. So uh, as a portrait of um, a vigorous 19th century woman, I thought Kerry Mulligan gave a very good performance as well. And the two of them uh, made the film very persuasive, but it was good to look at as well as, um, you know, well-written and dramatic. Now you've all met our new shepherd, Mr Oak. You understand your duties, Mr. Oak? If I don't, I'll ask, ma'am. From now on, you have a mistress, not a master. I don't yet know my talents in farming, but I shall do my best. Don't suppose because I'm a woman I don't know the difference between bad goings-on and good. I shall be up before you are awake. I shall be afield before you are up. It is my intention to astonish you all. Back to work, please. And they're a bit sort of, um, well, I suppose they have been for the the last decade, really. Flavour of the month, aren't they, these Victorian period pieces? Yes, and over the decades there have been quite a number of um, versions of Hardy. I'm thinking in about 20 years ago there was a version of Jude the Obscure, uh, that one with Christopher Eccleston and Kate Winslet. 
and there was The Woodlanders and another one, I think The Return of the Native made for television with Catherine Zeta-Jones. So in some ways he's a bit of a staple uh, for filmmakers. Oh, and Tess of the D'Urbervilles, I should have mentioned, one of his most famous, with Natasha Kinsky. So uh, probably every decade has had a hardy film. Do you think a, a lot of the sort of next generation are going to get their, their literary classics through the silver screen instead? Well, I think um, a lot of us do, and I probably did. Uh, I did try to read Far From the Madding Crowd after I saw the first film version, but somehow other his prose doesn't get to me. Same with D.H. Lawrence. I'm not too good at reading Lawrence, but I can't read Tom Clancy or John le Carre, but that's a secret between <laughs> you and me. Well, and so, everyone else now. Whereas we all have our <laughs> different tastes. So I was really glad, I'm always glad to get... Hardy through the silver screen. I tell you what, we're going to shift sideways somewhat, or rather across the English Channel to France, and look at uh, Madame Bovary. Now, this is, uh, I suppose, uh, a tale of an affair, isn't it, if, if, for those that don't know? Uh, Gustave Flaubert's debut novel as well, 1856, I think. Yes, I have a particular interest in France in that period, because as I've mentioned to you in the past, the religious order I belong to, the Missionaries of the Sacred Heart, was actually founded in central France in December 1854. And so as I look at films set in that period, I find it fascinating of what must have been going through our founder, Jules Chevalier, through his mind, wanting to found a religious order in that kind of France, which I think he found somewhat de-Christianized but he was a man of great hope and uh, literal heart, and so he wanted to bring some kind of zest into that world. And I think that as we're taken into this version of Madame Bovary, and by the way, there have been a couple of these as well, one with Jennifer Jones back in 1949, so a Hollywood version, and Isabel Huppert in the 1980s. So filmgoers have had their chance to look at Emma Bovary as a character. All ambitions to have a wonderful life. This film starts with her at a finishing school, Catholic convent, all the hopes in the world, and then being fascinated by marrying a doctor, but then taken into regional France, where really you could get in the horse and cart and just go up and down the street, and that was the end of the village, so that she becomes extremely dissatisfied, extremely bored, prone then to other relationships, which she follows through on, and um, a downhill spiral. Before getting married, I was contemplating my coming life like a child in a theatre, sitting there in, in high spirits and eagerly waiting for the play to begin. It was a blessing in my early youth that I did not know what was really going to happen. When I look back now, it seems that I was like an innocent prisoner, condemned not to death but to life and as yet unconscious of what this sentence meant. The longer I live, the more clearly I feel that on a whole, life's a a disappointment. Well, my dear, perhaps you are simply in need of a confidant. A lady friend who could advise you in such feminine matters. Unfortunately, I'm not... I came here because I need you. I will not remain standing inert in this fever of despair. 
I can say the film opens with her death. So there's no spoiler. And what we have seen is her death in the forest. And so we look then at her career with that kind of eye till we come to that moment again at the end of the film. So uh, it's a sombre kind of film. Partly sympathy for her, but she's a very self-willed, perhaps a touch narcissistic woman, and dissatisfied then with the, uh, I suppose, the uprightness of her husband, and so becomes entangled with a whole lot of other men as well. Now, you're not going to um, be tortured by the banalities and emptiness of provincial life there in uh, busy Melbourne, are you, Peter? No, there's always plenty to do, and in fact, I have to see three films tomorrow. Ooh, that's a bit of a joy. But you know what? I know, you, I know you're very patriotic, and we won't talk about the ashes, shall we, Peter? Let's leave, let's leave the ashes. But I will give you a chance to uh, give a quick word to uh, the lead actress who plays Emma Bovary, because I believe she's an Australian. Mia Wasikowska? She comes from Canberra. She appeared in a number of Australian films when she was a teenager and young, but then got to America for a miniseries that became Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland about six years ago. Ah, yes. And in a while, she's never looked back. She's in a lot of films, has had a very good career. But as with a lot of Australian actors, they come home and make a film every other year. So she's been at home, for instance, I don't know whether it's screened in England, a film called Tracks. Uh, from a book by Robin Davidson, who went across the Nullarbor Plain with a camel back in the uh, 70s or 80s. But uh, she was the star of that. And we had another film based on stories by uh, one of our main novelists, Tim Winton, and the film was called The Turning, with, I think, oh, 15 or 16 different short stories in the one film. And uh, she directed one of the stories. And she's not yet 30. <laughs> I think of the period pieces, Peter, I probably preferred Far From the Madding Crowd. Would you agree? How did you feel about Madame Bovary as a period piece? It immersed me in the period, and I appreciated that. But with its grim story and its somewhat grim outlook, it's not as um, coming out of the cinema with a happy face. Whereas Far From the Madding Crowd, which has its difficulties with the main character. She's a bit willful as well. I suppose she has more opportunities. She takes more opportunities. She learns from a terrible mistake she makes in uh, being taken in by a soldier, which is one of those Jane Austen themes, isn't it, where uh, young women are charmed by a man in uniform and she, of all people, falls for him. But it's a sober lesson. And... uh, I suppose, a more rounded story with more engaging characters. Well, we've definitely gone down the literary route this time round. Maybe next time round when we speak, we should go a little bit more, well, maybe take it a generation back and go for some all-action, seat-of-the-pants blockbusters. What do you think? Yes, I'm just trying to think if we've got any coming up. We're coming into our spring, so it means then that uh, moviegoers will be uh, venturing out now, Peter, I've got a little 
proposition for you, which I haven't mentioned until this this moment of actually recording our podcast. But I know that you know plenty about uh, movie priests and also uh, movie Christs. And I think we should do a few podcast specials, actually, as we uh, near the end of the year, the the last third of the year. Uh, Would you be interested in doing uh, some podcast specials with us? I would, because I'm trying, at least in my intentions, to finish my book on screen priests by the end of the year. Ah, how timely. I've, I've got um, moved on it yesterday and today with some of the appendices, but um, the trouble is these days I'm continually discovering a priest in uh, a whole lot of other films that I hadn't realised. So the manuscript is getting larger and larger. Part of it is the fault of the internet. Suddenly you discover a priest in that or some actor was a priest in something else, so... You can look them up or thank God for YouTube and sometimes the films are there. (laughs) In fact, there's one I discovered uh, which never got released in Australia called The Fitzgerald Family Christmas by Edward Burns who's got a Catholic background and has priests in his film. And just fiddling today, it's on YouTube as well. So maybe when I come home tomorrow I'll have a look at that. So plenty of material, James if you want to do Screen Jesus and Screen Priests. Peter, marvellous. Well, listen, thank you ever so much for your time. Sorry we missed your birthday. Glad it was good. Glad you had some pizza and did some teaching and it was all um, all a positive experience. And, yeah, please do join us in September for another podcast. I will, James, yes. Take care, Peter. Thanks a lot. Thanks, James.